Welcome to the Sober by Design podcast, where we explore the many pathways to recovery and a better life through conversations with a wide array of guests. Whether you're sober curious, in recovery, or simply looking to improve your mental health and well-being, this podcast will have something for you. Each week, we sit down with inspiring guests from all walks of life who share their personal stories of struggle and triumph, offering valuable insights and practical advice on how to design a life worth living. From addiction and mental health to spirituality and creativity, we cover a wide range of topics that are relevant to anyone seeking to live a more fulfilling and authentic life. So join us on this journey of discovery, growth, and transformation, and start designing a new life. All right. Okay, everybody, welcome to the Sober by Design podcast. Uh, Today, I have a special guest, Jason Lennox. Um, Jason is a you know, public speaker. He works in the recovery space. So he is a a welcome guest on this show. And Jason, uh, if you can give everybody a little bit of your background and an introduction to who you are, that would be awesome. Yeah, thank you, Corey. Um, Again, you know, I work in this recovery space. And as we were just talking a little bit, I love connecting with people in this space. And um, I'm a Massachusetts native, actually. And I live in Minnesota now, spent most of my life in Minnesota, but I I hold a job in the recovery industry by day and then uh, do quite a bit of speaking, just released a memoir, actually a story of my own addiction and recovery, released that back in December and love to do writing, speaking and and some consulting uh, for other behavioral health care organizations and, you know, just love that work I get to do individually and organizationally. Great, great. Um, and you just mentioned you grew up in Massachusetts, or you're born in Massachusetts? Yeah, Springfield. Okay, okay. So you're a little out west. Basketball Hall of Fame out there, right? For people who don't know, um, just drove through Springfield a couple months ago on my way up to UMass Amherst. Um, mm. So, what did your early like look like for you up in Springfield, Mass? Yeah, you know, I didn't spend a ton of time there first year or two was uh, mostly out there back and forth to Minnesota a little bit. So when my, when my mom and dad split, uh, they were both from there, but my mom's dad was actually from Minnesota. And so she moved us out to Minnesota to spend time that side of the family. And um, so I've, you know, spent most of my life in Minnesota and I have an older brother from that father and he was, in and out of the picture for my first few years, even after we moved out here. Uh, but I don't really have any strong memories of him. And, and my mom ended up getting together with someone and, and got married and had two more kids. And so we established a, a little family and house here in Minnesota. And, you know, they had grown up in some really tough times themselves. And that um, kind of trickled down to us as well. And it, it just was a house where, and, and and I always like to preface this when I talk about my, my upbringing is I had this lens for everything bad, right? I, 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 I was, I don't know if I was born with this. It's just a level of anxiety and, and uh, seeing things in perspective that wasn't really my, um, wasn't my best friend as I grew up. And so a lot of what I experienced was because of my own lens, mm-hmm. but nonetheless, I experienced this childhood where I was, always worried i was always anxious and thinking what did i do wrong and we were always in trouble it seemed like even when we weren't getting into trouble we were still in trouble and you know just a lot of um conflict that that happened and chaos at times and you know it it just was a a childhood that um you know that i i I don't remember all the details of and, and part of that might be good now i'll say you know, one thing that I, I did appreciate and love was school. School was kind of my safe haven. I got to get to go there and, you know, it didn't matter what anybody said to me. Um, I got to tell the, the truth about what my results were and how I was doing because I had the report card that said, yeah, ace, 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 ace. And so it, it really started to build this thing in me, this perfectionism, this I got to get it right. I got to get it right. And that's my way of doing it. And so I really excelled in school, but again, home was a, was a completely different story for me. And, um, you know, it, it, my mom ended up divorcing that man. And when I was in seventh grade, or 
seventh grade and we moved to a small town, thousand people and kind of looked at it as a new start for me. Um, I was the kid that got picked on in school and didn't get to do all the things I thought all the other kids did. So this was kind of a fresh start and quickly turned into a bit of a nightmare because it was quite the opposite. You know, I was picked on even more because I was the new kid. But in the midst of all this, I went from this, you know, doing really well in school to um, hanging out with groups of people that I might not otherwise have hung out with because most of my upbringing, I just felt this lack of belonging somewhere. And I think a lot of us do, right, in, in this in this industry and those that get into recovery. But I, I think it's much more widespread than that. But we take this lack of belonging and, and really channel it into what turns out to be you know, addiction and alcoholism. So it, my point in that is I land in this group of kids that I might not have normally hung out with a couple of years older. They're partying on the weekends. But I just wanted to belong somewhere. And so I embraced it. You know, I got sick as heck the first few times. I was 12 and I started, you know, to, uh, with substances and drinking. And, you know, I, um, again, I, I suffered through that because I was, I was willing to, uh, you know, trade that off for the sense of belonging. Yeah. Yeah. 12. That's a, that's an early start. So you're in, is it like rural Minnesota or are you outside of a, like a major city or is it pretty rural where you're growing up at this point? Yeah, that's, that's pretty rural. That's, um, you know, um, a thousand people and you cornfields to, yeah. to stretch miles. We actually lived right on the edge of town, the last house in town and we had a cornfield that we just hit golf balls into. So it was very rural, not a lot to do, mm -hmm. you know, one, one corner store, one park, that kind of thing. Yeah. So that, that environment can lead you to a pretty, you know, rocky road, um, because of your options, right? Like I know I grew up in, uh, you know, Northwest Jersey and there was always parties in the woods and there was a lot of drinking and, you know, that sort of behavior because we didn't have a lot of other options. They weren't on the table. There weren't community centers. You know, sports were sp sparse at that time when, when I was growing up. And I'm sure when you were growing up, especially in a town of a thousand people, I mean, how many sports teams can you really feel, right? So you're not having a lot of options that are healthy for you as a youth. And then couple that with, you know, your parents uh, split up when you were young and then you know split up again you're bullied you're looking for that sense of belonging and you find it in a group of kids that all just want to party i mean it is appealing at that point in your life for sure right because you're part of a group you know and i think that that you know that can come in you know different ways that can come you know in a positive way you know you join a baseball team or you join a gym or you join the 4-h or which is a little bit more prevalent unfortunately is you know drinking drugs and then you know you know go to the further extreme like you know the gangs right I, I imagine that that also is a thing that's very appealing to kids in that city where they can't find that thing yeah like all of a sudden you have this built-in community that's really what you're searching for at that point is a community is a family people don't understand you so I get it so from 12 to you know how long were you on that path with this group of people yeah, you know, that that was probably a year or two. And actually, my life started to turn around a little bit just from the from the network standpoint. So I, I started to hang out with that crowd. And it was just like, yeah, okay, maybe, maybe now that, you know, I'm in with one crowd, uh, you know, I gained a couple other friends from another, but my uncle actually paid for, for me to play some sports in that school when I got into high school. And, you know, you're right, there were, you got to pick from two. You have to pick from two each season. Mm -hmm. All these nieces and nephews I have now are playing six sports and they're doing it year round. And I'm thinking, yep, nope, didn't even have that option. So that, that, that was, but, you know, I've never played sports really. Like I said, I was this kid that grew up and kind of felt sheltered. And, and so that opened my, um, my network a little bit. And so I started hanging out with some of the other people playing sports. And next thing you know, I'm dating somebody in, you know, early high school and, just slowly start to gravitate a little bit further and further upward in, in terms of the people that I spent my time with. And, you know, by the time I was a sophomore, I was like, people were coming down to, to, to my place every weekend and we had my garage set up and it was, it, it, it was, my life was the center of that, 
of that school. And so it, it really was everything that I ever dreamed of. Mm. And I always say that, that yet growing up as this kid, I just wanted a friend or two. And next thing you know, whoa, what happened? No, my life is full of all the people and my, like it's rocking and rolling. And, you know, I, 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 uh, I talk about this in the, in the book that I wrote, that it really was kind of the rise and fall of all my dreams because you know, what I've learned about myself and so many of us is we're really good at forgetting. I always say I have the best forgetter in the world and, and in many ways. But again, I was the little kid who just wanted a friend or two. And now I have everything that you could imagine, including this cheerleader girlfriend on the varsity running back. It's like the American dream. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden my brain starts to go, well, maybe she's not the best girlfriend in the school. Maybe she's actually number two. So, okay, this, this other one over here, maybe I should try that. Right. And so I was already a sick person in high school and, and, and greedy and the ego and all those things that drive a lot of our sickness started to take over. And, you know, as I left that girlfriend for another and that didn't work out, and the, the people I hung around with started to see these decisions and, you know, I started to hurt people. And so I, you know, slowly, but then quickly uh, lost all of that. So I went from, one end of the spectrum to the other and then back to the, to the other end. And, you know, it just was really an unfortunate fall. And in that time, you know, I I lost my father. Again, we didn't have a a lot of connection, but when I was in eighth grade and started to get in trouble, we reconnected. My mom sent us to go see him. He wasn't doing well. The doc said, you know, you you got cirrhosis, man. You're Mm. you're 36. This thing is going to kill you if you don't stop. But if you do, you know, minimal effects. And, you know, by the time he was 39, three years later, um, he had moved out to hang out with us for a while, couldn't stay sober, went back and, you know, uh, ended up um, gone at 39. So it was, um, yeah, it was, uh, really that landed on the, on the heels of, you know, all the, all the friends that I'd lost. And so high school quickly turned from everything I wanted to, an absolute nightmare that's a yeah that's tough i mean 39's a, a young age to die at and that's a tough time to see your dad go to right uh, you know in that high school time frame um even if your relationship was a bit disconnected that's a huge blow so at that point you're you know towards the end of high school and you have had quite a few big life events you know i would say for somebody of your age um what was the next step you know you 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 kind of hit this peak then you kind of you you know i don't want to say you bottomed out but you definitely started this you know this downward uh kind of you know descent where where'd you go next did you keep going down or did you shift or what happened yeah, no, I, I wish I could I could say that that was the, the bottom, but that was really just the beginning. So, you know, in a few years prior, when I'd started, you know, drinking and smoking the pot and I was taking, a, you know, some prescriptions and, and things like that. But then right around that same time when I lost my father, it was the first time I discovered methamphetamines and, and, and cocaine and kind of got into that world of really hard um, stimulants and, and that kind of took me really on, on a, an even more downward path. And after my junior year, I left the house, couldn't get along with my mom. My senior year, I'm sleeping on the streets, um, you know, just trying to fight to, to, to get food every day and uh, ended up dropping out after my football season because that's all I really cared to do at that point in school was, was play that last season of football. And, uh, again, on the streets, homeless, not really finding ways to survive. And I ended up meeting a girl who was actually ironically dating a, a, a friend of mine at one point, and they'd introduced me. And anyway, we we ended up getting together because she had everything I did in the home, a nice car, she had money, and she looked good. And I just thought, finally, the world's looking out for me. And it uh, turns out we didn't really match that well. And, you know, we spent two or three days getting along. And after that, it was, it went downhill. So I, I left after a couple months back to the streets. Then she told me she got pregnant in that time. And, and I thought, there's no way, how could this happen? And hmm. uh, she wasn't lying. So we, we kind of went back and forth. We had some struggles. I got into some trouble that senior year and ended up in jail a couple of times. And 
you know, after finishing that senior year because of family, a foster family tried to help me. They got me back into school. I did some work. I went half the days. I didn't go the other half, but they graduated me surprisingly. And, and I decided to move to, to Massachusetts. Um, I was put on probation and a probation officer said, you got to get this right. And I said, well, it's just, it's the people I'm around. If, if I can escape them, then I'll be fine. So let me move to Massachusetts. Okay, great. Knowing that I was going to come back and be there for my son. I just lost my father, you know, Mm -hmm. a year prior. And I knew I was going to do everything to make sure that my son never had to experience what I did. And I lived out there for a few months, cleaned up, kind of, um, got away from the hard stuff, mostly because I didn't have access. I didn't know anyone, but ended up back here and got together with his mom and that didn't work out because I was still drinking pretty heavily and we just didn't get along. And, and, you know, after my son was about a year, I, I took off and moved about 30 miles away, which isn't very far to me today. But then when I didn't have a car and I didn't have a place to live, that's a long distance. And, and, uh, you know, before I knew it, four years had gone by, that was 2006 to 2010. And I was no part of my son's life. no conscious thought that that's what was actually happening. I, I had, um, you know, DUIs, disorderly conducts in and out of jail, missing court, picked up a felony drug charge. Um, it just kind of progressed in those four or five years in a way that just brought me to, mm-hmm. you know, the, the lowest of lows where I, honestly, I didn't want to wake up. I, I never wanted to wake up when I woke up. It was, it was the realization that I was still in the middle of this nightmare and, um, I had to face everything from the day before, the week before, all the, all the fears, the anxiety, the emotions of, of the reality that my life was. You know, I was mostly homeless in that time. I didn't have a car. I always say I was everythingless. No job, no car, no home, no money. Yeah. I just did what I could to survive. And, um, you know, frankly, by the end, just welcome the day that I didn't, that I didn't have to do it anymore. Yeah. And at that point, yeah, all the friends, everybody was kind of gone, right? It, it was, you were alone. So, you know, from there, obviously at some point this all turns around for you. And that's what I want to hear because I think you've done an awesome job from hearing that, you know, I didn't, I didn't know your full backstory, but from hearing that backstory to where you are now is obviously a big leap, right? So like, even for somebody to get to where you are today and not have that backstory, I think is like an amazing thing. You know, it's, it's a true, um, you know, you, you are helping people. You have a, a job that, you know, I, people don't understand it fully who aren't in this industry, but it is a challenging job. You're there all the time. You kind of take that work home. How did you start to, to pull yourself out, I guess, is, is what I would be interested in hearing. Yeah, I, I mean, honestly, I, I never really take a ton of credit for that because, you know, I was 24 when I when I landed in the rooms of recovery and in a treatment program, but it, it really went back to the age of 21. And at 21, I had a cousin, rest his soul, he passed away about 10 years ago, to a motorcycle accident, but we did a lot of, he, he took care of me in a lot of those bad, bad years. And even when he had to put his foot down, you know, it's still, he was the guy who would give me a couch if, if it was last resort. Right. And, and he actually struggled with, with, um, addiction for quite some time, a good chunk of his life, honestly. And we were sitting on his back porch one Saturday morning and I, I could just, I, it's one of those moments I can remember vividly, but I don't have a recollection of how it went. Right. I remember that what happened and what happened was he looked at me and said, Jason, with the history of your father and just the way that your life has gone and you, you see your own son, why, why, why are you doing this? I'm drinking already, right? It's Saturday morning. I'm, I'm half in the bag. And he said, I, I just don't get it. And again, remember this is coming from someone who's got a problem and had a problem for much of his adult life. And, um, he said, I just, I don't get it. And what I remember most about the, the, the interaction there was, I don't know. I, I don't remember what I told him actually, but I remember what I told myself. And that was for the first time in my life, I said, I don't know. I don't know why in the face of all the consequences in the face of my history in the face of my desire to be and do better. 
why I keep going back and falling flat on my face time and time again, right? That's what I continued to do. Mm-hmm. And that was 21. And, and, and I always say that that was such a low spot to be at because it, it, it brought on a feeling of hopelessness that there's no way, like, I don't have a way out of this. I figured a lot of things out in my life, including how to survive the first 21 years going through some of that. I was good at sports. I was good in school. I couldn't figure this thing out and it didn't make any sense. Not only couldn't I figure it out, I had every reason to, to, to figure it out and all the motivation wouldn't work. And so for three years, again, uh, the worst spot I could be at in terms of the addiction, but in terms of my recovery, I look back and think that was the best spot I could be at because it was the first time in my life that I did what I said, I don't know. Mm. I stopped pretending like I was, I had some kind of answer for this. And so that, powerlessness that we hear about and talk about uh that's what that was for me at 21 so it actually went back and and of course i went on for three years and just in that time hoping that i could minimize the pain and maximize the fun before i died i knew i was going to die from this thing so three years of that that kind of living where i get behind the wheel every other day and go as fast as i can just wishing that i could crank the wheel and, and end my life really like beat me to a place where I didn't have anything left. And, and when it really came crashing down was in December of 2010, when I, I had a near fatal overdose and I was working in a group home and um, had kind of cleaned up the summer before again, just got off the hard stuff, but then back into it as soon as I started working, got some money and um, landed in the hospital. And I had actually been on the run for about a year with felony warrants because I had skipped out on court had, violated my probation and you know never went back to see anyone so i knew i was facing the music and when i went they took me from the hospital to the jail cell um i, I was in so much pain then that i, I, I just uh, i couldn't imagine how i was even going to make it through the next hour mm-hmm. I, I was hurting so badly physically mentally emotionally and um, all i could think to do was call my mom because my mom and my grandma they had set up an intervention for me about 18 months prior to that and it didn't go well it didn't go well at all in that day but i remembered the person who was there the assessor who had done an assessment on me several times in the past and when i was going through that pain i just wanted something that felt less painful so i called my mom and i said i'm ready to talk to this person and i didn't go into that thinking that there was a different way of life for me i remember i like was resigned to this idea that i was going to die from this but i went in knowing I can't handle this. I can't bear this pain. Mm-hmm. So I actually did get honest with her because I was in so much pain and said, this is, I'm sorry that I lied to you all these years. This is where I'm at. This is what's been going on. Is there anything that can be done? Sure enough, they got me a bed in treatment. And again, I, I walked through the doors of treatment, transferred from jail, just thinking something has to feel better. No real hope that my life could, could get any better. But as you probably know, we hang around in, in the rooms of treatment and around other people who've done it long enough, you know, that hope can be established. And so really it was going to the treatment program mm-hmm. and the people that were there that extended the help that, that, that lended a hand that started to change my perspective because I hadn't really experienced people. At least it didn't feel like I'd experienced people who were just willing to help me for no other reason. I was surviving for so many years and thinking that we were all out to get each other and to be in a space where people wanted me to get better just because they wanted me to get better. And they didn't care where I came from, what I had done, all the people I had hurt, all the, all the deepest, darkest secrets that I could never share with anyone because I thought there's no way you'd ever look twice at me again. If you knew these things, Yeah, that experience started to turn the corner for me. Yeah, it is hard when you're early on to understand that somebody's just willing to do something for you with nothing in return. I've had a bunch of people, you know, in my coaching time kind of question why I was doing it. You know, they always thought I had some ulterior motive. And, you know, even in my real life, real life, in my, you know, in my normal interactions, I would say, where I'm like dealing with maybe a friend and I'm offering to help. And, you know, some people are very skeptical of help. Um, you know, and I, I definitely was at, at certain points in my time and I still am. I'm not the best at taking help, but it is, you know, at that point you're so vulnerable. Um, and you know, you've gone through a lot 
we all had at that point. Um, it is a, it's a hard time to understand. Um, the, the intervention um, is an interesting thing. I've only been part of one intervention, and it was not mine. Um, I never had one, but I was part of one for my brother. And it was a wild day. Um, that is a wild experience. Um, you know, I know that there's the television show on A&E, and that kind of explains it. But when you're really in it like that, it is, it's bonkers. So um, was that, just to step back a bit in time on your timeline, was that like something that you looked at and were you resentful for the people that set that up at that moment? And did it kind of maybe provide a hurdle, like another hurdle? Like, or, or did you kind of take something out of that day? And, you know, that was also part of the journey. Yeah, two things really that come to mind with that. First of all, and I was I was really, really, really mad that day. My brother had actually convinced me that I was going with him to help him. He was worried because he was going to pick up some drugs and he hadn't met this person and he just needed to make sure Big Brother was there, right? He knew mm -hmm. he could feed my ego and offer me substances and that I would do anything. And I was half in the bag already. It was a Saturday midday or something. We were driving by my grandpa's house and he said well look this person's here this person's here should we stop and say hi and of course i'm like yeah let's go talk to everyone you know i'm, I'm three sheets to the wind so we, we went in and as soon as i opened the door i knew what was going on i i knew that i was just fooled and i turned around and and my brother and his friend stood there and the fear in his eyes was like i'd never seen before but he stood his ground and i tried to get out the other door my two uncles were at that door. They barricaded me in this place. And I went and sat on the couch in the living room and said, screw you all. Uh, I'm not doing this. You're going to either call the cops on me because I'm in trouble. I know that. Or you're going to let me out of here. And they all took their turns. And eventually I convinced the interventionist to, to let me out and that I would meet him a few days later. Of course, I never did. But mm. it was a long, enraging ordeal for me. And I was really mad. And, and, and it it. It did two. It, it did two things. One, it shut me down from that family for a long time, but it ended up being a huge spark for my recovery. Because again, I this was at my grandma's house, and, and when I was in the jail cell, and I, I knew who to call. Right, so the, the seed was planted. Well, what happened when I got to treatment? It was a weekend, and my grandma passed away, and I had never gone back to her. And the last things I said to her were so inappropriate and so ter so horribly. Remorse, like I just had so much remorse and guilt and shame and it almost spiraled me right out of that treatment program honestly because I didn't know how to deal with that I was never going to be able to repair that with mm. the woman who took care of me as a child who did everything she could to just make sure that, she, that, that I had a good life and that's how I treated her and never got the chance to, to clean it up so it, it, it planted the seed that I later came back to but I think it planted a deeper seed in, in the way that that shook out with my grandma because from that moment when I found that out, I knew, I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I got to do this for my Grammy, right? And and I actually, the book I wrote, the dedication was there and, and it was largely inspired by, you know, my desire to live this life in her name because I never got to, to do that with her. And so it, 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 the intervention is a huge part of the story, even though it didn't end up like a lot of those do on TV in that day. Right. But it had its impact for sure. And still does. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what the success rate is on that, on interventions. I I've never really looked at the statistics, but having been part of one and, you know, I always look back and think, was it the right move that day mm -hmm. for this person? You know, and it, it was questionable at best. I mean, listen, I was still drinking at that point. So, mm -hmm. you know what? It, it's just like, you know, just looking back at the whole thing, it was kind of the one that I was part of was a little bit wonky. You know, yeah. um, you have people in the room who uh, didn't have their stuff together telling somebody else to get, you know, their their life together. It was kind of like, I don't know, like nobody should be throwing stones in this glass house. That's what it felt like. So, yeah, um, yeah. But, um, you know, um, so treatment worked. Did you stay on that path after getting out of that treatment facility? Is that sort of like a clean story after that? Yeah, yeah. I, um, I had that option or go back to jail. So um, I had a little motivation, but 
but nonetheless, I made it, you know, I went through that residential program for a month and then I went to a step down program where mm-hmm. I was, you know, still living in the facility for another five months. And, you know, when they wouldn't keep me anymore, not because of anything I'd done, but because they ran out of funding and they said, you know, it's time to fly anyway. You got to take the next step at some point. Um, I, I still didn't really have a safe place to go. I didn't know where I was going to go. And, you know, I had met a guy in recovery, you know, I asked to sponsor me and he and his wife picked me up from the halfway house often and took me to meetings. And he just kept saying, you can come stay with us, come crash in the basement, you know, until you can figure out what to do because places weren't willing to rent to me. I had such a poor criminal and financial history. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I didn't have a lot of job. I didn't have a lot of money to make a difference anyway. So the last day of that treatment, stay the last day of that six month period when I didn't have anywhere else to go I called and said is the basement still open and you know I went and lived in their basement for five or six months and they turned into another set of parents for me really I mean they because I have two lives this life that I grew up as a child got into the troubles that I got into and then this recovery life which was like starting over for me right I, I, I didn't know how to act emotionally mentally I didn't know I never had anything to my name. I never had bills that were mine. So it was like creating this new life that they just kind of guided me through and supported me in a way and loved and and showed um, just the generosity that I I had never experienced. And, you know, from that episode and being with them, I learned the greatest lesson of my recovery. And I was having a conversation with him one day and um, I was nine months sober and he said, "You, you know, you're good to, to sponsor other people now, you know? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, wait, wait a minute. T- treatment said that I should find a sponsor for two years, so that must mean two years is a qualification. So by that calculation, I have about another 15 months. So just let me ease into this. And he said, I, I, I don't care what they told you in treatment. Because our literature and our experience shows us that when we find a solution to this, our job is to go and share it with as many people as we can. And he expanded and said, your, your job once you've got this thing figured out, what you do, by the way, is is to not spend time on you and do you and think about you. Your job is to go help as many people in this world as you can. Mm-hmm. And, that, that, and not only did he articulate that, but their, their act of generosity of taking in somebody who they didn't know. I mean, I, I'd known them for three months, and I was the guy who would uh, lie, steal, cheat, anything to feed that addiction. The addiction was running the show. I, I didn't even know what I was capable of. And here these these two just say, yeah, we don't care, come live with us. So this act of generosity coupled with this man's uh, incessant desire to really just help other people set me on a path that was like, oh, yeah, you better believe it. I'm going to go out and I'm going to gain my own house and my own car and all these things, and I'm going to appreciate them. And once I have my needs met, my job is to go show the rest of the world how they can do the same. And so it really it took me to a new level early on. Mm-hmm. And I, there was work there, right, that didn't come without the work, but he just said it as flat as he could. You, you get well and you go help the next person. If you wait to help the next person, you might not get all the way well, right? He said, if you wait till two years before you help someone, you probably won't see two years. So it, it just was a life-changing period of time in my life and, and from there I, I got enrolled in school and finally got a stable job after a year and then another job and you know just uh, that that was the early part of of my recovery that really laid the foundation yeah that's interesting I mean you know somebody else might not have told you that right like that is an interesting stance that he took there you know because for me I don't know that I would have been ready at nine months to help anybody. Um, so you definitely were in a different spot. I mean, I, I probably should have. And I was doing other things in my community that weren't recovery focused, you know, working, you know, I was, I was coaching youth sports. So I was doing things mm-hmm. to help. Right. So I did get that kind of uh, positive feedback. And, you know, I was putting something positive out into the world at that point. So I think that that was sort of maybe scratching that itch. But if he hadn't told you that, yeah, like you don't know where that ends up. You know, you could have been, you know, waiting for that two years and, and, you know, and then the two years comes and you're not ready at that point because 
you, you went some other direction. So that one conversation definitely shaped your, your, your life because now you help people all the time. <laughs> like that is your, yeah. your gig. Right. So, um, so you've obviously found, um, recovery. How long have you been in recovery? Yeah. December of 2010. So about 12 and a half years now. That's and, amazing. uh, was my first attempt and I was fortunate enough to, to yeah. stick with it and, and see it through one time at the age of 24. And, um, yeah. it's been, uh, the, every year I, I continue to ask myself how it could possibly get better. Um, and it does. I mean, mm-hmm. it's from those, from those early days to where I'm at now, there's been so much in between and, and the journey has been, um, incredible. I finished up school and got in, got into this recovery industry at a very, support level job where I got to interact with people, get them up, get them going to group, driving them around, you know, taking care of the people that were coming in, uh, right off the streets and, and really got to experience that. And, you know, got pushed into, I shouldn't say pushed, I got invited into a, a more administrative role mm-hmm. and was in school for business at the time. And it just kind of made sense. So I, I had a dual role, but then once I got into the business world and working in the finance department, um, you know, got some exposure and, and the opportunities just continued to kind of just blow up right in front of me. Here's a dedicated person who's taking a personal mission and trying to make a difference from a business operation standpoint, which was a change of mindset because early I thought I got to work with people, people, people directly. And it took a mindset shift for me to say, well, I can still impact people. And today I know sitting in kind of executive level role, I know that what I do today impacts far more people than I ever could have individually. And I still get to work with people individually, mm-hmm. but just on a larger scale, the work I get to do today is is so impactful and powerful. Yeah. Yeah. You don't realize it as you kind of go up the the the, the chain at work, right? You start to climb up and up and you feel like you're letting that work that was so important to you go, but you know, your impact gets greater, right? So it's sort of, you know, you were at the macro micro level dealing one-on-one. Now you're at macro and you're hitting a hundred people with something that you do. And it's hard to, to have your brain shift that way. Um, I know for myself, I've had a really hard time with that as I've kind of progressed through my career. Like one, it's like, there's no way that anybody should have given me this much responsibility ever. Right. Like, (laughs) like that is a big thing that I go through just about every morning when I wake up, like, why, why, why do I have this title? Why do I have this role? Like, you know, and then I have to remind myself, like I, I've done the work. I, you know, I have the knowledge people trust me, you know, like all those conversations go on in your head. Um, but your impact just gets higher and it's, it's, um, you know, I think it's great that you're there. And you do have that impact now, um, because for you, it sounds like helping people has been like a cornerstone of your your recovery. So that's awesome. Um, I did have a question around family. So obviously, you know, early on and, and through your your using, you had a lot of relationships that were, you know, tested probably to the limits. Right. You had your mom, you had your siblings. It sounds like you had uh, your son and then. um you know, obviously, you know, his mom, where are you with all of these relationships at this time? Yeah, I, I think the the number one bright spot in my life is relationships and, and they go so, they stretch so far. But, you know, early in my recovery, those first few years, it was really developing the foundational habits. And some of that was how do I help people help people. But I had this whole history of family relationships and the dynamic there. And frankly, my family will admit today that, you know, I was the odd one out because while there's enough drinking going on in the family and they have, you know, birthday parties for all the little kids at the American legions of the world, um, the, the drugs are what, you know, differentiated me and they didn't want anything to do with that. So I, it was really like, I, I was shunned and, and never felt like I could, I was part of that family. And, um, that, that took some working through both from a therapy standpoint, but then just continued progress. And for me to say, you know what, I don't care what my brain tells me that these people owe me or it, whether or not they're willing to step up and acknowledge some of the things that they've done. 
after I'd gone to a couple other funerals, especially my grandpa's, he was the kind of the grandfather of the entire um, uh, family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I got sick of seeing people only at funerals. And so I remember that was 2016, 2015 when that happened. And I made some decisions and doing some of the self-development work that my family, I don't, I, I, it didn't matter whether or not they um, came to me. I was going to do everything I could to fight to make sure that family was number one and that we all felt uh, the presence of each other and that we got to experience things other than funerals. So from that, and I had done a lot of work early in my recovery. One of the first things I wanted to do was reestablish the relationship with my son because there I was (laughs) five years pretty much absent from his life. And I'd made every dang promise to not have him experience what I experienced. So Mm -hmm. there was work to do that took a while because, and it still is taking time because that's a significant portion of his life and that he remembers and, and there, it it just takes work. But what I've learned with my family, with my son, with all these relationships, the only thing that's up to me is to show up and do my job, which is to try to maintain um, good connection, try to bring people together, try to bring light into their lives and really not, completely disregard but set aside all the things that i think should make me upset or that they should be doing or they shouldn't be doing you know we i hear this all the time from people that you know well they never come to me and i don't hear from them and you know it's always me and and yeah i sometimes i feel like that's the case and still that's what i'm going to do because if it wasn't then i would be missing out on all these relationships Mm -hmm. and you know we do things like I started up a tradition my grandpa used to have, which is we all go up north. There are 50 of us every year, Labor Day weekend. I reestablished that. I went and just found a place in northern Minnesota, you know, put the down payment down and said, we're going to do this. And everybody came and we've been doing it for five years since. And it's the most magical week of the year. And to think that wouldn't exist if I would have let the things in my brain stop me from pushing forward with that. And they have since come back after and said, man, I'm sorry. I, I can't believe that this is how we approached you and how we looked at you and how we treated you, especially knowing now what we know about how, what you were going through. And none of that would be possible if it wasn't for recovery and, you know, the continued development inside and outside of recovery for me to say, I, I'm just going to take the high road here and continue to fight for these relationships. That's awesome. The ability to like kind of rise above it, right? And just say, well, I'm going to be the one that, that, that sets this up. And if everybody follows, great. If not, I'm still going to do it. I think is amazing. Um, I know family stuff is hard. Um, you know, I, <laughs> some people tell me like, oh, I have the perfect family. And, you know, I've heard that story from a couple of people. I'm like, really? Like, you know, every <laughs> family's kind of got something going on. I know my family does, and I will be the first to admit it. Um, you know, but I do try to navigate those relationships as best I can now, you know, um, I don't think, you know, I, I, my story isn't the same as yours. I, I never really had any huge fallings out, um, that I remember at least, um, you know, we had, a my family kind of broke up a little bit after I got, uh, actually as I've been in recovery, I've had a lot more mm-hmm. fractures, um, mm-hmm. through different, you know, things that have happened, you know, deaths and you know health issues and you know things that have just kind of come up and i think being in recovery has helped me navigate those things very well right because if you're not and those kind of challenges come up that's something that can really drag drag you down further you know but able to go at it with a clear mind and understand like what my role is in it um has been helpful so i'm sure as you navigate your relationships that's the same for you you know you can come at these things very clear-headed and say you know if it's not working what's my responsibility here? Did I have a role in, in making this relationship bad? So, you know, it sounds like family is a big thing for you, which is awesome. You know, knowing again, a little bit of the backstory. Um, so you got family, you got work. What's fun for you? Like, what are you doing for fun? Yeah. Oh man. You know, I, I travel. I love to get out and see a little bit of the world. It's uh, I, I was very sheltered to the rural area of Minnesota for 
most of my life. And, you know, after I lost my cousin, I told you about the motorcycle accident. I made a trip to Colorado where he was living and went back to see my family in Massachusetts and in New York. And next thing you know, I'm going to Mexico and Costa Rica and Florida and just, you know, once a month I'm getting on a plane and, and going somewhere it seems. And, and it's just, um, that's fun and it's so fulfilling and it just creates a bigger world for me. Um, my world just keeps getting bigger and bigger and I get to do so much of that with family and a partner I have that she just loves to jump on the plane with me. And, um, we just, we have a lot of fun doing that. I love exercise, sports, music, you know, there's a, there's a balance. It's not all the, and I've had to learn that I've gone through the ups and downs where it's all work and then it's all family and, and, then you know, there's no play in there. And, um, I, I've, I've learned to, especially in the summer now days are getting longer. It's music it's sports and seeing my little nieces and nephews grow up and play sports and traveling and just connecting people. Um, I, I, I just love being with people and, you know, I need my, my time to decompress, but spending time out in that world and, and making my world bigger is that's, that's what drives me. That's it's my great. fun. That's great. Travel's awesome. I don't do enough of it. Um, you know, it's something that we want to do more of. It's just, you know, it always kind of falls to the back. I mean, we do a lot of traveling up and down the coast, but, you know, Costa Rica is somewhere on the list, so that would be awesome to see that. So I'm sure it was a great trip, and I enjoy eating, so I'm sure there's a lot oh. of great food. Oh, food, food. I, I should have never left that out, food. I'm such a – and it's changed over time. When I first got into recovery, I had such a scarce mindset. I survived, and I didn't eat for days at a time sometimes, mm-hmm. so – all of a sudden I'm going to the other end of the spectrum and it became a problem. And geez, I mean, could it be diagnosed with some disorders around eating, I'm sure throughout my life. And, and over the last five or six years I've coupled the exercise, which I have always done a lot of since I've been in recovery, but you know, really adding that next level and quality nutrition has been such a magical experience for me health wise and just to, the, to develop my palate and experience, um, you know, different foods and just what quality food can look and feel like is that's one of my joys for sure. So I'm glad you reminded me of that. Yeah, it is an amazing thing, right? When you have great quality food, it is such a huge difference. Like uh, we, you know, obviously we'll eat pork chops and stuff like that, but we have like a local farm up here that raises like a heritage breed pig. Mm. And then you eat that pork chop against something else you're like wow this is a completely different level and the more you travel and you go to these other areas and you go to a like a fine restaurant like you understand you know not only do do you 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 feel full but you feel full with less you feel a little bit healthier you sleep better like there's all these things that happen and uh it is an important part i mean i don't do that daily i obviously garbage from time you know (laughs) throughout the day um you know, I think it is the balance, though, and, and, you know, you talked about balancing it all out, and for me, sometimes what I have to do is go back and check. When I'm feeling off, sometimes I'll check, like, how is that balance looking? Like, am I dedicating the right percentages of my day to the things, right? And where is the family percentage? Is it at, like, 5% of my time, or is it at, like, you know, am I dedicating 80% of my day thinking about family? That sounds great, but not really, right? Like, you got to kind of yeah. adjust those numbers, and sometimes, for a while, I was tracking it, like, per week, and then I would like look at myself the next day to see how I felt um, because how you spend your time really does affect you, you know, and, um, you know, is it working out? Is it watching TV? Is it reading? You know, what are the, those things are? And you could really dial it in if you are vigilant about, you know, vigilant and honest, I would say, about how you spend your time. And, and you know, when I work with people in recovery early on, I'll say, like, take your day and sit down and chart out how you're spending your time because I could tell you you're probably misusing some of it and that's probably why you're not feeling great on a day-to-day basis and um, you know that's like an easy tool that I use early on with people just like take your day give me your how much time you eat sleep how, you know shower dress all that stuff and then look at the rest and how are you divvying up whatever that is is it you know five hours of free time how'd you spend it and you know odds are not you didn't spend it well if you're not feeling great so um yeah yeah i I, um you're speaking my language there and the 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 business person in me 
the analyst and then also just the way my brain is wired with, with numbers and analyzing that constantly, right? It's been maybe too much energy analyzing everything all the time, but I do that. I, I look at my days, even today, I mean, I'm 12 and a half years in and I'm always thinking about what can I do to take myself to the next level? And, you know, that's tracking, you know, sometimes the nutrition that I'm taking in, the exercise, just looking at what's impacting my day. And lately I've been just looking at what are the sources of information that I take in on a daily basis. I've been working with a coach and she said, that's the first question she asked when we met. Tell me everything that comes to you through an inbox, through a screen, through other people, that's information and start to look at that. And it's, it's really like alarming and easy to see why we get in, in ruts and why we fall into certain patterns when we, when we can see what we're putting into our brain, right? Not just our body, but what is coming through these eyes. And that's huge. It's been huge. That is a huge one. And one that I kind of struggle with and think about probably daily, um, you know, and, and I've kind of gone up and down. I, I've removed most of the social media uh, outlets from my phone um, I'm on Instagram only and I don't know even know if that's good or bad um, you know but it is a community of you know people in recovery that I deal with are, are there so you know it's an outlet for that but it's just you know it is interesting because we have so much information hitting us and most of it is not great so uh, that is an interesting thing that that's what she focused on first that's a good one. Yeah. Well, and I, I think, you know, you, you bring up a good point. And this is where there have been times in my recovery where I've thought, I'm getting rid of all these things, social media apps, because I just get sick of reading all the, the junk and hearing the people arguing. And I mean, just the last few days, they're having a hmm. pride event in my old town and, you know, thousands of comments. And I just started doing the math thinking, this is taking thousands of hours of this community of 20,000 people of their time and all they're doing is arguing with each other at this point. How is this possible? What could that time be used for? So anyway, then I have to stop myself and say, well, don't be one that's using an hour of your time on it. But the, the social media, the, in my thought process there was someone like you is trying to have an impact and you are having an impact and reaching all these people. It's like it, that conflicts with, you know, it, reaching all those people conflicts with not having these outlets to reach people. Right. So it's hard because we need to, somehow maintain some sort of presence online to be able to read to, to fulfill our goals and it's it's how do we for me the question is how do i continuously monitor and understand how i'm using these tools and i've gotten really good at that yeah yeah i think i've gotten better i know for me when i feel like i have a gripe i try not to gripe on social media right i say if i if there's something that i want to change in the community i'm going to go physically somewhere and change it right be it a board of ed meeting a town meeting wherever i'm going to go speak my my problem where it can actually get solved because nothing's getting solved on social media right so that's how i've kind of taken that i try not to get into those arguments and i try to use it just for you know the the tool that it is for me um but it's hard it's a hard one it's probably one of the harder things out there right now um, well yeah the, the the i just read a book actually called stolen focus it's by johan hari An amazing read by the way if anyone's looking for that but it it really it, it dissects why this is such a major problem and really what's behind it is the giants of the tech world that have created this and our attention Every second of our attention is worth a portion of a dollar, right? And so the, these platforms and these online um, giants have continued to evolve the technology to bring in and keep our attention because it just continues to add dollars to the bottom line. And, um, and it, it, what it does is leave people, like I heard you say this earlier, and I, I catch myself saying this all the time, uh, uh, I'm not that good at this or, you know, I need to get better at this. And this book talks a lot about this isn't, like we can do some things, but this is a system-wide problem. And then the system looks back to the people and says, well, why don't you just fix it by, by doing better, by having more willpower, when in fact it's the same discussion we talk about with drugs and alcohol, right? Like mm -hmm. that's what people used to say. Just don't do it. It's not that hard. Just make that decision. And we're talking about the same thing with this, with, with these technologies. And so it's, it's really a... Um, and, it's consuming so much of our time and energy. And, and so I'm just doing everything I can to be mindful of that and 
keeping myself well in, in every way that I can. Yeah. Well, a little bit of a tangent, but a good one. Um, yeah. And Johan yeah. Hari writes some good books. So that'll definitely be in the show notes along with your book. Um, the one last thing that I do like to try to leave with, and you, you mentioned music. So I try to leave people with like recommendations from the guests, either, you know, movie, show, book, you're giving me the books. So we got books covered, music, anything right now that you're really into that you'd like to share with the, uh, the world or whatever, not the world, the listeners here. <laughs> Yeah, no, you know, I'm uh, actually this. I haven't gone to a lot of concerts in my life, but this summer, I, I've always said that my two favorite vocalists, male and female, are Ed Sheeran and Pink. And it just so happened that these two are both in Minneapolis this summer, actually two days apart. And you know, I listen to the the Pinks and the, the Ed Sheerans, and I think just generally the theme of the, the the music that we can relate to so much is. Some people look at from the outside. I have a good team member. He said, eh, "If I'm feeling down and sad and sappy, I'll listen to your pink music, you know, or whatever." And, and to me, it's like I've always connected to that deeper level of emotional, lyrical music that really, you know, I can I can relate with because I've been there and I've, I've come out the other side and, and I can understand how that music uh, sees us through it. So those are those are the two people that I, I listen to the most and. You know, probably always will. I just love pure talent from a vocal perspective and a performance. I've not seen either of them, but I've heard great things about their performance. And I, um, yeah, I love that calming, that kind of indie, indie style, indie folk music I listen to all day long. That's great. That's great. Yeah, I um, I know Ed Sheeran just played here in the New York area this weekend, mm. and. Um, I, my wife's, I think, trying to get tickets to the Pink concert at uh, Shea Stadium or City Field. Used to be Shea. Oh. Um, so we're we're working on it. We haven't gotten the tickets yet, but um, I know that she's coming through in August. So it's a big concert. Um, this week, my music thing is um, there's a band Goose. Um, they're like a jam band, and they released the recording. They played at Radio City over last summer, so they released the recordings from that. And uh, they played with uh, Trey Anastasio from Fish dropped in the one mm. night so that, you know, you got a really crisp recording of a, a pretty good performance. So I've been listening to that on Spotify since it came out on Friday. And uh, that's my that's my recommendation for the week. It's, you know, it's um, it's always tricky to have to do one a week, but this one was pretty easy for me. So. Well, it keeps you fresh then too, right? You're always on your game trying to think of what it, what's it going to be? What's the yeah. new stuff? And I'll take your recommendation there. I'll yeah. listen to that. I, I appreciate music and such yeah. a huge part of life. So Yeah, that's also my, my other brother who lives in North Carolina, uh, not North Carolina, in uh, Denver. That's his, uh, that's his band. He owns a talent agency. Oh. So he's one of his bands. So, um, wow. Yeah, good guys the the one i love the one the piano player if you if you go online and you watch a video of goose you'll see the the piano player and you could just see like he loves life right and it's like that's the kind of person that you want to be around he's kind of infectious mm -hmm. so yeah um, anyway but that's that and you know jason i'm gonna put all the links to your socials your book you know i think your story is amazing and you know just that that arc of it is is really inspiring and i think people are going to take a lot away from this episode and i you know i thank you for taking you know time out of your day um to, to jump on here with me if you want to give anybody any info let it rip and uh you know again everything will be linked in the show notes yeah no i appreciate the time and i, I always appreciate the opportunity to you know i know we show up and volunteer our time a lot to to really spread a message and try to you know impact even if it's just a, a person that heard one thing you know um i think oftentimes it's way more than that but uh, any impact is great and i you know i always like to leave um just with this thought that continues to circulate in my mind and that's people that struggle and, and i struggle sometimes too to this day i think we all do to some extent and the good news the, the hope for me is always that whether we're in a like the difference between our really bad spots in life whether we're still struggling with drugs and alcohol whether we're just struggling with mental health or we're, we're in some sort of scenario in life period of time the difference between all that and 
a new journey and something new and something inspiring and something fulfilling is always just one day. It just boil it down to this. There's one day, the one day I went to the hospital was, was the day that was the difference between the, the hell that I was living and the beginning of something that I never, ever could have dreamed of. And, and I think that's always important because we, any of us can hang on for a day and knowing that that's, that's the delta there and where it can, where it can turn. It's just always such a, such a hopeful thought for me and, and hopefully it can resonate with some others. That's awesome. Thanks for that, Jason. And um, again, appreciate you being on. And, you know, I think, again, people who listen to this episode will definitely be inspired to, to make a change and, and do something in that one day. So thank you again. And um, everybody like, subscribe, review, whatever you can do to help boost this up in the, in the Spotify or Apple podcast world would be great. And we will talk to everybody again next week.